open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. Um, after starting in September, we're now finished with chapter 1. So I don't know what that says about our pace, but we're, uh, we're making our way slowly through it. And you can open up to, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, which begins a new section in the letter. Um, if you follow Jesus for a while, if you have grown up in church, maybe or you've um, listened to a lot of preaching and you've maybe participated in Bible studies or you've been uh, faithful to do devotions um, throughout the years, then you might be familiar uh, with the sense of conviction and the idea that after hearing a sermon that particularly seems to expose you, uh, you feel maybe a sense of guilt for not having lived up to what the Word calls you to live up to, or maybe it helps you identify an area where you recognize that you need to grow in. Uh, the Holy Spirit will often highlight something in our lives, and, uh, and I've found in just growing up in the, in the church and under faithful preaching for many years, that there's often, there, there will... Two things, two categories uh, that tend to always convict me, at least. And often it convicts many people. There's these two areas where we often feel inadequate. There's, there's areas that um, you almost never feel like you're doing enough. Uh, you always feel like you could do more. And maybe uh, we can, and maybe we should feel a proper sense of conviction, and we come to this passage in, in Timothy, and these two subjects that so often convict us are woven together in one text, which is to say that it has been very convicting for me this week in preparation to preach this to you. The, the topics I'm mentioning are prayer and evangelism. Isn't it true that often when prayer is made the subject of a sermon or a Bible study, we feel inadequate? How many of us feel that we've prayed enough, that we've prayed hard enough or heartily enough? Often we feel like we could pray better or we could pray more. Or evangelism, how many of us feel that we've evangelized enough? Reflecting on my sermon this morning on the way to church, just passing house after house and car after car on my way in a short drive. It's not long. It's 10 to 15 minutes from my house to get here. And just reflecting on all the numerous people that I pass from my house to here who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they need a gospel. And without a Lord Jesus Christ, without a Savior, they have no hope of eternal life or for the forgiveness of sins. And you can almost feel paralyzed at the need for evangelism in our community. And so, so that's one of those subjects, you bring up evangelism and you can almost never feel like you've done enough. You still have unbelieving neighbors, maybe unbelieving family members, maybe unbelieving friends. And so you weave together now these two themes of prayer and evangelism in this next passage in the letter that Paul writes to Timothy, and there's good reason to feel convicted. And I hope and pray that as we look at this, we would not feel that kind of conviction that leaves us sad uh, or produces a sense of guilt, and we feel that there's no way to remove the guilt, but that it would expose in us uh, what God intends for His church to be like. And then in seeing what God's Word in, 
shows us that we would conform ourselves to this and that we would happily depend on the work of the Holy Spirit to be conforming us and to trust His work. It's been good for my soul. I hope this has been good for you or will be good for you as we look at the text. So, so open up in your Bibles if you're not already there to 1 Timothy. And we're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 to 7, although we're only going to really make it through the first four verses. And we're going to see how God, in His Word, calls us to pray as a church, evangelistically, for all people. Let's read it together. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This passage is remarkable. I want you to remember the context with me. If you've been around the last few weeks, you might remember that Timothy is commissioned by Paul to stay in a church that's not a healthy church. Uh, it's very likely that the elders of the church, the leaders of the church, were veering away from the gospel. They were teaching different doctrines that were promoting speculation, and they were not promoting love. The church wasn't being built up in love by the preached gospel. Rather, division and strife, dissension was being sowed among the people because there was a false gospel being preached that didn't engender love of Christ and love of neighbor. It produced vain discussion. These preachers would get up. They'd make confident assertions about the law. They'd talk about endless genealogies. This is all chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. And they would do so in such a way that didn't create harmony and unity in the church the church was being divided by these teachers. Timothy is told by Paul, remain there. There's work to be done. And your role here is to make sure the gospel is clarified. So you've got to stop the false teachers. You've got to make sure people understand the law. And he even holds his own life up. Paul says, if you want to see the conversion power that the gospel has, look at my very own life and how God saves sinners. He encourages, them, he encourages Timothy to wage the good warfare. We spent a couple weeks at looking at this spiritual warfare that Timothy's involved in. How he needs to uh, hold a faith in good conscience. He needs to be aware of not shipwrecking his own faith. <clears throat> And then we come to this after kind of laying the foundations for what the church needs and how Timothy is to go about his ministry. He begins to kind of lay out more practical directions for the church. It's like Timothy is, is reading this and, and in his mind he's, okay, I've got to wage the good warfare. I've got to clarify the gospel. I might need to confront some teachers. Okay, but, but what practically should I do? You know, we all gather on a Sunday morning. Uh, what should a church service look like? And, and it's almost as if Paul anticipates that question and begins to show how the church should be shaped as a body and how it should function as it gathers on a morning together. 
just like this morning. And what's interesting here is in light of all the opposition that Timothy would be facing and all the problems that are running rampant in the church, the first of all thing, look at chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, the first of all thing, what's the solution? What's Paul going to tell Timothy to do? He's got to stay, he's got to teach, he's got to correct, he's got to confront, but okay, as they gather, what should their services be like? What should they make sure they're doing as a church? What should Timothy lead them to do together? What's his solution? First of all, then, and he's going to teach them to pray, to pray. Corporate prayer is in view here. This is not necessarily talking about individuals going and learning to pray, although that's important. The Bible teaches that in numerous other places. But this context is how Timothy is to lead the church in prayer. This is a church being taught how to pray together. And this prayer, you'll see, is not just corporate it is corporate, it is the church praying together, and Paul's teaching the church how to pray together, but it's evangelistic. It's very clear in the context, God desires all people to be saved, and we are to pray for all people because Jesus Christ was given as a ransom for all, verse 6 says. And so this is Paul teaching the church corporate, evangelistic prayer. Corporate, evangelistic prayer. Prayer, corporate, it is what the church does together. Evangelistic, it is reaching outside the walls of the church. It is praying for the lost. This is the type of prayer that Paul holds up as a first of all priority in the church that is unhealthy, that needs to be made healthy. It is, hey, Timothy, first of all, as you think of all the things that need to change, as you think of all the things you need to do, make sure on Sunday mornings there is time to pray together corporately for the lost. Do not forget this. He even uses this word, urge them. In Greek, it's the first word in the sentence, urge, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This text has kind of been like a door for me to open up and go explore all the different texts about this type of prayer. Corporate evangelistic prayer. It's not that this is the only place in the scriptures where this is taught. Uh, you, you read the Old Testament and it's actually filled with examples of this. You could think of some. You could think of Abraham. As God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, you encounter Abraham pleading with God to spare that wicked city. Remember that? If there's only this many righteous people, please would you spare them? Please spare them. Remember Samuel, he's even praying for a nation Israel that's wayward at this point rejecting the kingship of God over them. And Samuel makes a statement where he says, it would be sin for me to stop praying for these people. Remember Job, even in his calamity at the very end, he goes and prays for all his friends. Remember Daniel, who would not stop praying no matter the cost to his own life for his exiled people. Remember Solomon, the king who stood before his people and David stood before their people and prayed for the nation. Remember Nehemiah praying for the people of Israel. Maybe the most tremendous example is Moses. 
If you remember the story of the golden calf, you remember this incident, Moses is up on the mountain and he's receiving the Ten Commandments from God himself. God's finger is writing in, inscribing on the stone tablets, the laws that he would have for the nation of Israel. And as he's about to go back down the mountain, you remember what's happening amongst the people. They've turned into idolaters. Aaron was not really duped, but kind of duped into creating this golden calf. He is obviously very much responsible, he and the people along with him, for creating this false idol that now everyone is worshiping. And Moses comes down the mountain and God says to him, my wrath burns against these people. I'm going to wipe them out. And I'm going to start over with you, Moses, I'm going to eliminate these wayward, idolatrous, wicked people. And if you remember what happens immediately after that, Moses falls before God and begins to pray. Oh Lord, he begins to pray. And he asks God for his own glory, for his own fame and for his own name, so that Israel would not become a laughingstock for all the nations Moses says, Lord, preserve your people and relent from the wrath. Lord, remove your wrath. Yes, we deserve wrath. And isn't it amazing that this man, this mere mortal man, interceding for the wicked nation of Israel, God hears his prayer. And the wrath that was going to land on Israel is removed. God delays and removes his punishment from them. This has been remarkable to study. That God hears our prayers for the lost. And that he often uses our prayers to remove his own wrath from people who deserve it. No matter what theological system you hold, The Bible is clear that prayer impacts reality. Does prayer change things? Is sometimes a question thrown around in churches that uphold the sovereignty of God. And we do uphold and believe strongly in the sovereignty of God. And so sometimes people ask, well, does prayer really change anything? Yes, it does. The Bible is very clear in examples, but also outright explicit teaching that prayer changes things, that God answers prayer. Moses' prayer was answered when God relented from his wrath. Hezekiah, if you remember, he prayed for health. He was about to die. God gave him 15 more years of life. If you think that God's sovereignty is a reason for you to stop praying, keep reading your Bible. You will see that the Bible does not teach that God's sovereignty means we do not pray or that prayer doesn't matter or that prayer doesn't change things. God has so ordained that your prayers and my prayers and ours together are part of his plan. They're woven into his plan to redeem his people. So that James could say in chapter 4 verse 4, you don't have because you don't ask. It doesn't mean the opposite of what it says, (laughs) that you'll have it anyway, even if you didn't ask, because God's sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do no matter what. Your prayers don't really matter. That's not what it says. It's not what it means. 
It means that our prayers cause things to happen that would not have happened if we hadn't prayed for them. That's what it intends to teach. You do not have because you do not ask. And so God is ordaining prayer as a means through which He uses His people's prayers to redeem His people. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy and he's thinking about what needs to happen in this church to bring it away from unhealthy division and bring it toward health where it's fruitful and productive and seeing people being brought to salvation and discipled into church, what must they do? Well, first of all, he says, they need to learn to pray together. They need to learn how to pray together. Our prayers have real impacts on the lives of people who are not yet saved. Our little church that most people in the world have no idea even exists can have massive global impact around the world. What an amazing thought. I know this is true not only because the Bible teaches this, but because we've seen it in our own life. Years ago in a small group that I was in, we began as a group to pray for friends and family that were not yet saved, and we prayed regularly, and every time our group met in our home, we would pray, and we had lists, and we would go through lists, and we would pray, taking turns, which person we were praying for. We'd often ask for updates on those people um, to see if there were any opportunities that, were, uh, that the Lord opened up doors to share the gospel, and we just kept praying, and one night uh, in our small group, somebody that we'd been praying for for months walked in the door and sat down on the couch and it was amazing to see that the Lord had absolutely converted that person and I am without a doubt in my mind convinced that if we hadn't been praying for him that wouldn't have happened we wouldn't have seen that conversion I do believe that God uses the prayers of his people you've probably met that guy by the way his name's Mike O'Neill and he gives you big bear hugs and and you probably got to meet him when he was here in the uh, over the summer the Lord converted him in answer to prayer. We've seen it firsthand how the Lord answers prayer. And I hope that our church gets to see it firsthand and more than once that we see the people we've been praying for come in through these doors and sit next to us and maybe get in that baptismal and confess their love for the Lord Jesus and the conversion that He has brought upon their lives. But friends, we must pray. We must pray, and this is what the text is inviting us to do. We're going to take a look at the text and, and look at a few lessons we can learn together for how we ought to pray corporately in the church. Let's look at the first part. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Note the words again. I've already pointed them out. I urge, taking priority in the sentence, it's the first word that he writes here, urgent, this is urgent, this is to be prioritized. First of all, uh, this is of utmost importance. If we want church health, if you want church health here, if, if as a family we want to see this church become more effective in giving glory to God and seeing the lost saved, we need to see what is of prioritizing importance. It is prayer here. And here's our first point. We must prioritize corporate evangelistic prayer. We must prioritize corporate evangelistic prayer. It is urgent, from Paul's words, it is a first of all kind of thing, 
This is what we must do if we want to see health produced in our church. Recently, I was talking to a friend who wasn't satisfied with the evangelistic zeal of his church. He seemed, or he said, it seems like everyone here is kind of content to keep the status quo and there's not much talk about doing ministry uh, amongst neighbors and friends to help them see the glory of the gospel. It just doesn't seem to be happening. And it got me thinking, well, what would be the solution to something like that? Well, it seems to me that the first of all solution that Paul gives, the inspired apostle gives, is that prayers be made. Uh, Corporate prayers, the church praying, and not only just praying together, praying evangelistically. Isn't it true that we tend, (laughs) when, when, when the church is maybe drifting from its mission, or maybe things aren't as healthy as we'd like them to be, that our first look is for better methods, innovations, creative strategies, organizational systems that can work. And Paul would say none of those are of utmost importance. Maybe those are helpful. But first of all, pray. First of all, make sure your church prays. Timothy, you want to bring health? Make sure you know how to corporately pray and pray evangelistically for those who don't yet know Christ. So I want to ask you, I mean, maybe you've been in different churches where you've experienced the way different churches pray. How do churches normally pray while together in a normal service? What words would you use to describe the typical corporate prayers of the gathered church. Reverent, sincere, expectant, hopeful, faith-filled. I hope that would be good if those were the types of words we're using to describe the way the church is praying together. Or maybe you would use casual, short, rambling, as an addendum or an add-on. Part of the reason why this has been so convicting is because I know it's so important. And yet one of the things that I feel like we could learn together is right here in this text that we could learn to pray better together as a church. Previous generations thought this was true. I was reading a book that is uh, by a guy named Charles Brown. Uh, Not Charlie Brown, that would be a different character, Charles Brown in 1844, so more than 100 years ago, he wrote a little book, it's called The Ministry, I have it on my desk in my office because I was looking through it, and he's in this book, he's writing to pastors about the practical uh, ways to organize your church service and different tips and tricks, and and he's a, it was a good book uh, recommended for me as I was getting into the pastoral ministry, and he has an entire chapter on public prayer, and he has warnings Things you are not to do in in public corporate prayer. And the first warning is this. He says, first and most obvious is the evil of wearying out even the devout worshiper, both in body and spirit. And he goes on to describe how he feels that too many preachers are tiring out the congregation because they're praying too long. And then he goes on to limit prayers to no more than 10 minutes. Do we, do we have that problem in America at all? Anybody? Anybody been to a church service where you're like, man, that prayer is going too long? 
I wish we need to cap it at 10 minutes because he's, he's going past 15. I mean, we talk about capping the preacher. I get that. But, but prayer time? George Whitfield once remarked, he's listening to a sermon, or he, after listening to a sermon, he says, he prayed me into a good frame of mind, and if he had stopped there, it would have been very well, but he prayed me out of it by keeping on. I don't know that we face the same problems that the churches 150 years ago faced in that the corporate prayers were too long. I don't think that's our problem. I don't think that's the problem of our generation. Now, I don't want to err on the other side and say, all right, guys, now 15-minute prayers is more spiritual. That's not what we're saying here. I don't want to err on either side, but I would say our generation's problem is that we're probably too flippant, too casual, and too short in the way we address the God of the universe when we pray together as a church. We don't believe that prayer is something we do to transition between singing and preaching or something that we do to make sure there's no quiet time as we gather. We pray because we actually believe that there is a good God who exists in heaven who loves us and listens to us and He promises to answer our prayers. It's not perfunctory when we pray. We pray hopefully, expectantly, believingly. Believing that God loves to give good gifts to His children. It is urgent then that we pray. This is what Paul wants Timothy to put in the church of Ephesus is time for prayer. Evangelistic corporate prayer. Listen, I don't know that our society and our culture the way it is does a good job of preparing us to slow down reflect on what we're doing when we pray i don't know if tv internet culture social media culture encourages or cultivates in our minds the ability to slow down reflect be quiet and pray in fact, I think many churches trying to keep up with the entertainment culture are often afraid of silence. Afraid to slow down. To move slowly through a service. To do so meditatively. Reflecting on who God is and who we are. What Christ has done. Instead, we are used to entertainment, amusement, constant new images flashing in our face. We are on TV watching a tragedy take place on the news, interrupted by a Carl's Jr. commercial, and the cognitive dissonance, we don't know how to process anything, and so we tend to be shallow, we tend to want entertainment and amusement all the time, all the time, and then we get into a church, and often, too often, the churches are just trying to play the same game, anything to entertain you, we don't want to make you pause, we don't don't want to make you think. We don't want to make you meditate. That would make you too uncomfortable. Or we might commit the most grievous American sin. We might make you feel awkward. But friends, first of all, we need to pray together, which I think if we are to do this well, we must slow down, meditate, 
reflect so that when we pray, we know what we're doing. I hope our services are not shaped by cultural values, but rather by biblical values. And if we are to shape our services by biblical values, I think we will set aside time to pray together. I hope we'll set aside time to pray together. And he goes on. Look at the next part of the verse. I urge you then that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Here's our second point. First, we've got to see the variety, or sorry, the, uh, the priority. And secondly, we have to see the variety in our corporate evangelistic prayers. Our prayers together are to have variety. Look at the different words for prayer that he uses. I urge, this is an urgent thing, that supplications, these are requests, these are um, prayers that bring our needs to God. We're asking God to meet our needs. He says prayers. This is a common word that's more general, more broad, and it includes all kinds of different prayers. This would include prayers of confession. This would even include a prayer of lament. It emphasizes the reality that we know that we're speaking to God in our prayers. We're called to intercessions. Uh, the Greek word's root of this, this word intercession means to fall in with someone, to fall in together with another person. And, and it refers to being so involved in another person's lives that their burdens are your burdens and their joys are your joys. And the things that they are groaning about in life, the things that really ache their souls are the things that are causing your own soul to ache. And so the things that they want prayer for are the things that you want to pray for the things that are, they're going through are your things too. Their issues are your issues. And so you pray with them. You intercede for them. You go before God on their behalf. That's what an intercession is. Thanksgivings, another kind of prayer. Uh, you know what this is. Gratitude, thankfulness, saying back to God all the things He has done for us. Now, we want to do these prayers corporately because this is what the Word is saying that churches should do. Paul says Timothy ought to pray with variety. There's different types of prayers to pray. And now, this is, this is just to get really practical. We, we give you a bulletin every week, and I, I try to make this clear that in the bulletin, there's an order of service. And, and this might be unlike any other church you've been to, but the, the whole point of that is to constantly communicate that you're not a spectator out there. And that what you're going through is a, is a, on a Sunday morning is kind of a corporate devotional time. And, and putting in your hand the order of service allows you to participate knowing where we're going to be reading Scripture, knowing how we're going to approach the Lord and what kind of prayer we're going to pray. Isn't it true that in your life there are some times that you have great needs and you need to have prayers of supplication? And isn't it true that in your life you have need of, to pray for conf in a way that's a confession? And isn't it true that you need prayer and so there's intercession? And all different kinds of prayers. Isn't it great that God has arranged that the church not be one type of prayer all the time? Only praise, only thankfulness. We should be praising the Lord and be thankful all the time in all circumstances. But sometimes life is hard. And here we have right before us in the Word of God different types of prayer. Prayers that we can all pray at different phases of life and different seasons of life. 
Like the Word of God in Ecclesiastes says, sometimes it's a time for laughter and sometimes it's a time for mourning and we need prayer suitable for all occasions. And so we have put in your bulletin the order of service so we can all pray together. I hope that's what you do when you pray with us. I hope it's never just me standing up front and I'm the only one praying. I trust it's not. (laughs) I trust that as I go to vocalize the prayers, you are there not tuning out. I know that's the temptation. But to say, this is us praying. This is my family praying. We are going to the throne room before God. We are praying together. It's amazing when we do this when we pray together, when we are a praying church, when it's not just one person, it's an entire church family in one voice. All their, all their prayers are like tributaries flowing into one stream up to heaven. And all our prayers are united in one voice to heaven. And the Lord hears all our prayers. And I think He delights to answer the prayers of His people. We all pray. And we pray with variety because there's a variety of needs in our congregation, isn't there? And so we pray with variety and think this is what Paul wants Timothy to do in the church, to pray with variety. Here's our third direction for praying. We pray because it's a priority, corporate evangelistic prayers. We pray with variety, these kinds of corporate evangelistic prayers. But third, we much must have far-reaching corporate evangelistic prayer. We must have far-reaching Corporate evangelistic prayer. And you see this very clearly. I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. All people. Did you see that? All people. Verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. For kings and all who are in high uh, positions. He's speaking about us praying Not just for the needs of this congregation. We do need to do that. That is highly important. But all people we should pray for. All kinds of people. I don't think this means we make a list of 7.2 billion people who are in the world right now and we go through name by name and pray for each one individually. This means we are to pray for all kinds of people. This does not mean, or negatively, it means there are no people we refuse to pray for. I'm not going to pray for that group of people. They're beyond the pale of God's grace. We're not, we're, we're not going to do that. It means we pray for all kinds of people. Positively, it means we pray for those who are rich and those who are poor, those who are close and those who are far, those who are powerful, those who are weak, those who are like-minded. And as Jesus said, we pray for our enemies. We pray for all. To even clarify the reach of our prayers, he singles out, he he first mentions all people. You see that there at the end of verse 1. But he singles out a special category of people we need to pray for, and it's the kings and those who are in high positions and authority. We should pray for kings and queens and presidents and prime ministers and tyrants and teachers. People who hold authority in the world ought to be the subjects of our prayers. And based on the context, we ought to be praying for their salvation and praying for their wisdom in the world. Let's reflect on this for a second. Have you thought about this? That our prayers corporately shape the world and that we are praying for kings? You, you want to have an impact on a kingdom, on a nation? You can. 
You want to have impact on the world and, and have this little church make impact on kings and kingdoms and dictators and rulers and nations and tribes and peoples that we will never be able to meet in places we will never be able to go. You want to have influence in those places that you can't travel to, that you're not allowed in, unreached people groups where if you go to, they want you out and they'll try to kill you if you go in. You can go there in your prayers. In fact, this is the kind of stuff we are invited to pray for. Those who are in authority in all peoples so that we can have the opportunity to see God reach these people with his gospel. We we, want to see these people saved. We want to see God do work in the world to allow the gospel to be preached. Look at what is given as one of the reasons we should pray this way. Look at this. For kings and all who are in high, high positions. Okay, so why should I pray for them? Look at this. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. You might think, well, that sounds kind of selfish. I'm supposed to pray so I can have a nice, easy, cozy life. Is that what? No. What he's saying in the context is that we are to pray for these authorities because these authorities are going to be the ones who are shaping society and we want peace and quiet in our world so that we can live in such a way where we can preach the gospel without fear of persecution. Now, During the writing of this letter, Nero, infamous Christian hater Nero was in authority. And Paul is saying, hey, pray for those who are in authority. Pray for Nero. What's interesting about this is also right around the time of this writing was in Rome, there was something that was called the Pax Romana, Roman peace. It was a time of peace in Rome where there wasn't too much war that they couldn't build roads and expand their economy. One commentator said that the prayers of God's people in the first century literally was paving the roads of Rome so that the gospel could be preached to more people. An interesting take that it is true that the prayers of God's people, we are praying for the gospel to continue to go out, but we're also praying that the government would allow that to happen. That there would be peace, that we wouldn't have to worry about our lives being on the line if we share the gospel. It is good to pray for peace in our land. It's good to pray for gospel opportunities. It's good to pray for open doors. It's good to pray this way. It's good to pray for the freedom of speech in our nation to continue on so we can keep preaching the gospel. That we may live a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, and that in our peace and quiet we can live fully the Christian life that God calls us to live. This is amazing that the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth is dependent on the prayers of God's people in the church. I'm convinced that every great missionary movement and every great missionary who's ever been sent out and has made an impact on unreached people groups or into new locations where the gospel has not yet gone, that behind the scenes, unwritten down in the annals of history, is a praying church, a praying family, a praying people whose names will never be known, who prayed corporate, far-reaching evangelistic prayers. They might not even know the extent to which their prayers had been answered. But maybe years down the line or generations down the line, the prayers of the saints were answered and doors for the gospel to advance were opened. 
people like William Carey and David Brainerd and others who went and gave their lives to serving on the mission field to make sure the unreached peoples got the gospel. We celebrate them and we ought to celebrate their faithfulness. But behind the scenes, friends, there was a church, probably a church much like ours, probably not much bigger than ours, who prayed, who prayed that the gospel would be able to be advanced because they were praying for their authorities. They were praying for the people who were making decisions. They were praying that roads would be paved both figuratively and literally that the gospel would be advanced. And so we ought to pray for far-reaching results for the gospel fruit. But there's another reason we ought to pray far-reaching prayers. Look at this. Verse 3. This is good. This kind of prayer for kings in high positions and and to pray for this way. He, he says, this is good. This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here, here's a second reason that we are to pray far-reaching prayers. It's this, because these types of prayers reflect the heart of God. Look at this. This is, this is good. That implies that it's an inherently good thing to pray these kinds of corporate evangelistic prayers. It pleases God to pray this way. Isn't this great? When we come as a church, one of my biggest concerns is the question, is, are we pleasing the Lord? And here we know for certain that this type of prayer pleases Him. I mean, that's the whole point of church, isn't it? To please the Lord. To be faithful. I mean, if we never see a convert, if we never see church growth, if nothing else happens, we can know that we're pleasing the Lord when we're praying this way. That is our goal, to please the Lord so we can know, hey, let's pray this way in our church. That's our goal. And you might say, well, why does it please the Lord? Well, look, it says very clearly, this pleases the Lord because, verse 4, our God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. When you pray and we pray as a congregation for those lost people across the world and across the street, friends and enemies, who don't yet know the Lord, when we pray for them, do you know that we are reflecting the very heart of God for the lost? God desires all people to be saved. That is the heart of God. His desire is that all people would be saved. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son it is His heart that all nations come to know Him. All peoples and all tribes on every corner of the globe come to see His great worth and to admire Him and worship Him. This is the heart of God. And when we pray like that for friends and neighbors and nations and tribes and peoples, we are imitating our Father. And He delights in that. To see his little children praying just like his own heart desires. 
Friends, this is good news that God desires all people to be saved, isn't it? This is good news. Your desire to see your family get saved is right in line with the heart of God. Take courage in that. That that God desires all people to be saved. That your prayers for those people are aligned with the heart of God. 2 Peter 3.9 God is not wishing for any to perish. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. And this is very good news for you. If you showed up this morning and you don't know if you've been forgiven or you're somewhere uncertain in a place where you don't know if God even wants to save you or if you ever had doubts of God's love for you, why would He love anyone like me? How could He save someone as guilty as me? Why would I ever have access to Him? He wouldn't want to adopt me into His family. If you've ever had those thoughts, this is great news. Because He desires to save you. It is His heart's desire to save you. And if you right now trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, fully atoning for the sins of His people, you can be saved, forgiven, and adopted into the family of God. This is what God desires that even right now, trust Him. Be saved and be forgiven. This is the heart of God, and the heart of God shapes the prayers of God's people. We're not like beggars trying to pry open the hand of God when we pray for the lost, as if He's unwilling to give something, and we must be the ones that go and break open His hand so that He will shower us in His blessing. No, when we are praying, we are aligning ourselves with God's heart. Now, as you think about this, you might be wondering to yourself, okay, if God desires all people to be saved, and if God is sovereign and He does whatever He pleases, which is true, doesn't it mean that everyone will be saved? Doesn't, isn't that what that means? God desires all people to be saved. That's what it says right here. And we know that God is sovereign and omnipotent. He does everything He wants. So doesn't that mean everyone will end up in heaven because God will get what He desires? And this is where it is very important to understand the whole of the redemptive story and all of what Scripture teaches about a specific subject because very clearly the Bible does not teach that all people are going to heaven. Just read the end of Revelation where you see hell on display in a terrifying way where the unbelieving are cast into the lake of fire. Not all people will be saved. The way that we can think about this is that God has two wills. There is the will of desire and the will of decree. The will of desire is God and what He takes pleasure in. He delights in things. He takes pleasure in things. He he wants certain things to happen. But then there's His will of decree, which is His ordained plan that He has put into motion from before the foundation of the world that will come to pass no matter what. God will accomplish His ultimate purposes in the world. That is His will of decree. His will of desire is that which brings Him pleasure. His will of decree is that which will come to pass. 
Nothing can thwart the will of decree, but often we can be outside of God's will of desire when we live in sin and disobedience. If you say, how does this work? Think of this. Maybe this is the best place to think about this. Think of Jesus outside Jerusalem. Think of Jesus standing outside on a hill looking over Jerusalem. And do you remember what the Bible says he did? As he contemplated the unbelief of the people of Jerusalem, remember what he did? He wept. He, he wept for them. He said, oh, that they would have come. Oh, that they would have come and I would have gathered them in. I would have cared for them like a mother hen. I would have loved them. I would have consoled them if they would have come. It was the heart of God to see His people come to Him. He desired that they would come. And yet, in the mysterious sovereignty of God, it was the unbelief of Jerusalem that would be the tool that God used to get His Son on the cross to pay for the sins of His people. See, the will of desire was that all those people would be saved in Jerusalem. But it is His will of decree, mentioned in the prophets, anticipated by Christ Himself as He told His disciples, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. It was part of His will of decree that He would be crucified by unbelieving, an unbelieving mob. See, this is mysterious, and yet it is what the Bible teaches, that God desires all people to be saved. That is the heart of God. You can believe that. That's what this text says. And when you feel that you want other people to be saved, you are feeling something that God feels. You are feeling a desire that is from heaven. It's God's desire for the nations that all His people, all people would be saved. And yet... Though God will get glory in the judgment of sinners, He does not take delight in their condemnation. He wants all kinds of sinners saved. All people saved. Jesus Christ is a ransom, it says here, for all men. And so He desires that all people be saved. And this, friends, should be reflected in the way we pray. We desire all people to be saved. We desire nations to know Christ to come humbly before the throne of their Messiah in repentance and faith, experience full adoption into the family of God. That's what we should be praying for. And honestly, I hope this shapes the way we pray from here on out. This is kind of a landmark Sunday where we go from here on out, we're going to pray, and I'll take blame for this, that we haven't done it as well in the past, that we haven't prayed as evangelistically for the world in the way that I think this text leads us to. I hope from here on out it becomes normal on a Sunday morning that we are praying for a nation that is not America. And we're praying for cities that are not Rancho Cucamonga. Yes, we're praying for those things. And we will keep praying for those things. But our prayers are far-reaching because they're reflecting the heart of God for the nations. I hope our prayers are like that because it does reflect a little bit about what God is like, doesn't it? If someone were to come in these doors and sit in the back chair and just observe and perhaps listen to the way we pray, what would they think our God is like? Is God only concerned about the things here in this little building, in this little city? Or do our prayers only reflect things small and Within this little family, we should pray for those things. 
But would they see when they listen to our prayers that God owns the entire universe? He holds the globe in His hands and He wants all those people to be saved? Would we see that big of a God? John Stott tells a story related to this point. He says this. He says, I remember some years ago visiting a church incognito. I sat in the back row. When we came to the pastoral prayer, it was led by a lay brother because the pastor was on holiday. So, he prayed that the pastor might have a good holiday. Well, that's fine. Pastors should have good holidays. Second, he prayed for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child that she might have a safe delivery, which is fine. Third, he prayed for another lady who was sick, and then it was over. That's all there was. The prayer took about 20 seconds. I said to myself, it's a village church with a village God. They have no interest in the outside world. There was no thinking about the poor. There was no thinking about the oppressed, the refugees, the places of violence, or world evangelization. A village church with a village God. May it never be so among us. That someone who would not know God if they were to come into this room on a Sunday morning, our desire that they would see by the way we talk and the way we pray and the way we sing that God is God of all nations. And we would pray in such a way that we are asking to be a part of His plan to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so, friends, may our prayers here in this room and in small groups and in one-on-one conversations, may our prayers cross the streets and get into our neighbors' houses. May our prayers fall like rain all over Rancho and Upland and Fontana in Ontario, in places beyond us, may our prayers cross oceans. May our prayers go into unreached people groups where we can never step foot. May our prayers travel like that all around the world, all around this small globe, which is God's. And may that reflect our God who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The psalmist prayed, let the nations be glad. And sing for joy. Let all peoples praise you, O God. And may that also be our prayer. Let's pray. So Father, I ask that you would allow your word to conform us, not just as individuals, but as a church family, to broaden the way we pray together, And our desire is that we would become better at this. We confess that often our prayers are village prayers that too often reflect poorly on you. And so Lord, may this make us a praying church, a church better at praying. And may, as a result of encountering your word this morning, we bear fruit, becoming more consistent and biblical in the way we pray. And may we, 
by your grace and mercy, see responses to our prayers. And Lord, if we do not see immediate fruit from our prayers, may we continue to pray knowing that this kind of prayer pleases you as it reflects on your character and your love for the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.